0: You're listening to the Grapevine Podcast for Triple RFM with Dylan Bird and Kalia Colston.
1: On this podcast, we spoke with Cam Walker uh, after changes to energy and climate policy internationally. We also chat with John Lawrence from Electronic Frontiers Australia about proposed changes to Australian copyright laws. And right now, you hear a fantastic conversation we had with Hungry Ghosts ahead of their Leaps and Bounds Reformation show.
0: To get the goss on this and a whole lot more, we have the members of Hungry Ghosts here in the studio: JP Sharlow, Tim Howden, and Jason Bonham. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Hello.
1: You? Hey
0: there. So it's been a, a very long time between playing for you guys. Have you sort of uh, at all collaborated in that? 18 years since your last uh, Hungry Ghosts show, or um, or have you been keeping quite separate? Uh,
2: we have a we have a a, a bond, which um, you know is probably pretty timeless. But yeah, we have um uh, been playing um throughout that time, or I I have and Tim has uh, played violin when we did uh, the Pop Crimes uh Roland S. Howard sort of show, he was playing violin parts and
0: yeah, because mm. yeah, JP, you've, I mean, you've gone on to play with a whole bunch of different acts, including, of course, Roland S. Howard, Pop mm. Crimes, and with Mick Harvey a lot as well, including on his most recent album, Adelita, The Black Eyed Susan. So you've kind of kept yourself very busy. Gun for hire, I suppose. Of <laughs> sorts. But take us back to, to the mid 90s when Hungry Ghosts were formed. What mm. was it that brought you together in the first place? Uh, Tim Tim had a, uh, a, a, a cafe in the in the city which was just a doorway.
2: Literally a doorway. It, it was a lovely little broom closet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that made beautiful coffee. And um, one morning, uh, I, I was walking down the causeway, and uh, and beautiful smile. Tim does have a lovely smile. You can't see it on radio, but you can hear <laughs> it.
3: <laughs> there it is. He's flashing it. There right. it is. <laughs> <He's flashing> it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: um, and and that was it. I sat down and ordered a pot of tea. And um then Jason was sitting on the on the next table and before we knew it we were best buddies. Wow, the things that happened from a pot of tea. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Rub it and ask for, you know, three wishes or whatever.
0: Yeah. And I mean legend has it that, that you played three shows before being invited to record your debut album. Yeah, yeah we uh we had really no intention
2: of uh Playing live that much or anything? We sort of the first gig was at um, the Centre for Contemporary Photography, and we all played out of the one amp, and it was <laughs> too loud, even though the amp was on one. It was those concrete rooms? Um, and then we went to Paran We had a, like a playing for playing for a drink card back in those days at the what was nicknamed the Losers Club, because it was the only place where you could get um, you know booze late at night. And I think we played uh, in between a. Elton John covers guy on a keyboard and uh, a young magician of, and uh, we won the drink card that <laughs> So it was a competition n- Not really, no <laughs> It's not a competition No. and Lindsay Gravina was from, uh, from Birdland, he saw us play and um, immediately approached us and said, what are you doing in here come out and make a record What was this. he doing in there? As I said, it's uh, (laughs) late at night, late at night, watering hole. That is a good question. Very close to the studio. So, yeah, pulled us into the studio and handed us a a list of names. Who would you like to produce this album? Went down and Roland's name just beamed out from the page and, Mm. yeah.
0: Yeah, so so what role did he have as the producer in in forming that that debut release? He plays on a lot of, of the songs as well. Um, uh
2: but instruments that you wouldn't expect. Like on that last one, he was playing the Farfisa organ. Mm. You know, we get the guitarist from the birthday party to play the organ on. (laughs) I think he liked us because we didn't sound like the birthday party. We are obviously, you know, appreciated. Um, But I think emulating, you know, music that you like doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. So he sort of was intrigued by how we could sound like that without, you know... Um, he, yeah, he was there and and would you know add add little flourishes if there was something needed you know something was there, in a producer's role. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah, and it was the start of something pretty special, I guess, because as you mentioned before, you came back and and worked with Roland on what what became his final album, Pop Crimes. True, true. Yeah, it was um, well that was
2: my first record, and I was nineteen. Um, yeah, it was our our first record, and then you know I suppose. Ten or so years later, it was his last. So, it was sort of returned the favour, I suppose. Mm. Yeah.
0: And but your second uh, record was was recorded in New York. You were invited over there by Sonic Youth, Steve Shelley. So, you've got mm. kind of a good a good track record of being invited by people to record albums. <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, it was uh, Sonic Youth were doing a show, and uh, the same night, Roland and Hungry Ghosts were doing a show at the Public Bar, and they came along after their show to see Roland but we were alternating headline because we were doing a residency and um, so they they didn't get to see him but they saw us and Steve came up afterwards and uh, invited us to
0: to New York so mm. looks through the diary <laughs> yeah, no, no, of course <laughs> we, were, we were there in a flash yeah. um, and I mean a lot of times passed since then this was last century Technically speaking, this was uh, 1999 when all, all this, yeah. this happened. So, I mean, what's it like coming back together kind of properly for the first time since then? Was it really easy to start collaborating and, and, and writing? Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, the, the connection or the, the chemistry between
2: us or the alchemy that's between us is quite unique. So it's almost like we, we hit pause and then we've come back together and taken off where we left mm. from. It's like putting on an old pair of jeans, yeah. I suppose. You kind of put them on and go, hmm, yeah.
0: It just feels right. Yeah, this I do not care there are right. holes in them. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I am one now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And, and you have been writing, writing new stuff? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we'll, we'll preview some
2: of that at the, our upcoming show. Mm. Exciting times. Yeah.
0: Mm.
1: Are you working together in the same way that you used to?
2: Uh, more or less. Uh, it's it's quite an organic way that we work together. Uh, one of us may come in with, with a particular theme that uh, provides a framework, but there's always the space given for for the other colours and, and, and flavourings to come in. And then we often will talk about it and try to... How can we strip it back? Because the essence of... When we first got together was... After we turned up to eleven and made horrendous noise, then we, we, we tried to see how little we could play and how much space we could create. Uh, so we, we do work in a similar way.
1: So is, is Sean Simmons behind this regrouping or or um, for leaps and bounds or was it already happening? Uh,
2: he, he gave us a gentle prod <laughs> um, and I think I think in part it was due to uh, uh, YouTube. Um, the, the song I Don't Think About You Anymore but I Don't Think About You Any Less um, somebody sent sent the link to me and, and it, it now has um, uh, I think it's 10.3 million views which is crazy for a, a band that's not playing it's one of those um, mysteries of the internet um, and it, that's probably when you see that many views and you go oh maybe we should put the band together Back
0: together, yeah. Tell us about that show. Is uh, anyone else going to be joining you on the night? Ninety nine, yes. Ninety
2: nine, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, ninety um, uh, yeah, nine. We haven't played with them for well, since then, obviously. Mm. So it's uh, it seems to be a uh, uh, a number. I think it's. I think tickets are uh, on the door. Uh, I think they are, 1999, so... Well wow. you know.
0: it's all about 99. <laughs> <laughs> 1999
2: with a bullet. No, it's going to be, it's going to be <laughs> a great
0: show. <laughs> mm, it's always good to see them live as well. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Claire Moore's joining you as well for your, your show?
2: Yeah. Um, she'll be playing vibes and and percussion for us. We've done a couple of rehearsals and she it's as if she's been there the whole time.
1: She's got the jeans on as well.
0: Absolutely, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) And um, do you have uh, kind of firm plans to record again at this stage, or are you waiting for another invitation to come from one of your shows to be whisked off somewhere? (laughs) I, well, you know, we just we.
2: The best things usually happen when you don't make plans. Mm. So you know, keep your options open. But um, yeah, if there's anybody out there who, yeah, feels like uh, making a record, sure.
0: Well, you've got form. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Every show you play, something comes from it. Yeah, well, thank but, you. but, um, it's been fantastic having you in the studio. JP Charlotte, Tim Howard and Jason Bonham, they are Hungry Ghost. Uh, as I mentioned before, playing at Leaps and Bounds Festival at the Gasometer this coming Sunday. Uh, best of luck with the show and thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having thank us. Thank you. See ya. See ya.
1: Talking now about proposed changes to copyright laws, Uh, the Free Is Not Fair campaign to protect our existing copyright laws has been ramping up all year and is supported by many of our major arts groups, including the Copyright Agency, Australian Association of Authors, APRA, AMCOS, Screen Producers, Indigenous Art Code and many more. Uh, The current concern is that if copyright laws are changed to allow for what's called fair use, as recommended by a Productivity Commission report last year, it would no longer adequately protect artists However there are others who believe that the current laws are skewed too far in favor of copyright owners and consumers are bearing that cost. One of those people is John Lawrence from Electronic Frontiers Australia and it's always good to have you on Triple R John and um you know we speak often on to Electronic Frontiers Australia and I think many people listening will be concerned about changes proposed changes to copyright laws and worried if they're watered down and we know artists already don't earn very much mm-hmm. money. Uh, so what is it about the current laws that you are supportive of
3: Sure. Or, okay. or
1: concerned about?
3: Yeah, no, fair enough. And look, I think, um, you know, this can be a complex area. Um, and we certainly, you know, we certainly don't dismiss our concerns at all. In fact, um, we're very sensitive to them. I think it's, it's important to kind of step away, I think, from the sort of uh, binary approach that, that this is either about artists income or it's not because it's actually quite a bit more complicated than that um, essentially the, the the primary issues at the moment that that, that we um, that we're concerned about is that um, the current copyright law is far too restrictive and it and that has all sorts of um, all sorts of implications for things such as research. So, um, data mining is a is a real problem here for for many of our researchers. Um, there are issues around cloud services. Um, many of the online sort of services that we that we all enjoy that are of course are run out of the U.S. literally could not exist in Australia because of our current restrictions. Um, there are things around. Um, you know, concerns for universities trying to set up, you know, online courses and so forth. So there's some significant issues for the education sector mm-hmm. um, where the law is just too restrictive and it and and loosening those restrictions doesn't really affect anyone's income, as it were. Um, there's also issues around orphan works where, for example, um, you know, the copyright owner is no longer alive or contactable or, or, or whatever um, and there are issues around, you know, how those... Um, how those works can be used, because um, at the moment they're essentially kind of locked away. Now, our our support for fair use dates back to, uh, I was looking this up the other day because we were challenged on it, uh, 2003, um, and sort of dates back to when we uh, signed up to the US Free Trade Agreement. That's sort of where um where this conversation started in a sense. And what we got there was a lot of the enforcement mechanisms around copyright without without the trade-off, which is fair use. Now um, a lot of uh a lot of the opposition to this is really fact is really um based around sort of two claims. One is that this will erode, you know, artists' income, authors' income. There's just and and the fact is there's just no evidence to support that statement. The Productivity Commission looked at this um, they said, "Okay, show us, you know, show us the examples." And they're just not there. Um, so I think we need to look at that fairly critically. Um, what we're talking about here with fair use is essentially one of the one of the key key determinants of whether a use is fair is whether it affects essentially the market for that use, uh, for that work. So if what you're doing is essentially not depriving the copyright owner of income, that's sort of the first thing you look at for it to be fair use. So, in a sense, partly by definition, um, there's a real problem with that with that sort of opposition. And I think, you know, it's understandable that artists are concerned about anything that might threaten their income because, you know... They well, they're it, threatened they, all over the place already. They need a they can get, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, we're certainly sensitive to that, but I think there's actually a fair bit of misinformation out there um, around that issue, uh, and it's important for people to kind of look past that. Um, the, other, um, the other sort of primary argument... Um, which I think is actually quite sort of lazy and, and and a little bit sort of scaremongering is that this is all about Google and the big big American tech companies. Um, the simple reality is that those organisations, Google, you know, Twitter, Facebook, um, many of them exist under US law, which has fair use. They already have it. Um, whether Australia introduces fair use or not is really really pretty incidental to their operations. Um, you know, they might end up doing a few more things in sydney that they otherwise would do in san francisco for example but at the end of the day it's not really going to affect anything they do so that argument i think is a little bit spurious and is kind of um buying into you know other issues around you know taxation and you know uh the effect of uh you know online advertising on the you know Media industry and so forth which are which are kind of separate issues, so I think it 's important to sort of look past some of these some of these claims and actually look at what the benefits are for fair use and and, and they are quite considerable part of
0: these proposed reforms as well as I understand it is um, i mean part of the mix is that people are already kind of unknowingly breaking the law exactly. in terms of sharing content that would be
3: fine if you were yeah. based in somewhere like the USA, but is actually illegal here, yet yes. people get away with it. Yeah. So that's that's one of our key concerns is that essentially, um, you know, if you use Facebook, then you are breaching Australian copyright law on a daily basis. Um, that's, you know, if you're sharing an image, um, you know, even from a friend, friend's photo, you know, technically that's a breach of copyright if you don't have... Um, you know, express permission. You can argue, argue around the margins of that. But there's a whole range of things there which are simply just part of accepted society. They don't really harm anyone and we need to sort that out because a law where essentially the whole population is breaching it on a daily basis is a bad law that needs to be reformed. And that part of it sort of plays into, a, I think, a general lack of respect for copyright in the community which has a number of factors. But in a sense, if we can sort these sorts of things out, then you know, it puts copyright on a stronger basis, we would argue, that, you know, actually benefits everyone down the track.
1: And we, I mean, we know we're a a country of piraters, especially around film and so forth, that's been shown. But if we have laws and the ability for content to be shared at an affordable rate, for instance, if we can pay a small amount for a film rather than a lot and so forth, people will pay. So I wonder, is it likely that these laws will lead to people... Buying less content and getting more for free if it changes or will we no, still have that that's the, short the, the um, makers still getting an income
3: yeah so um, by definition um, you know piracy for one of a better word is not a fair use by definition right so whether you know whether we have fair use or not um, is completely it 's a completely separate argument in a sense it 's not going to enable you know um, anyone to uh, you know, watch a movie or watch a TV show that, that they can't already. Um, the clear evidence is in. Um, the Productivity Commission noted this, but you can look at the stats. There's even research done by the Federal Communications Department that shows that essentially, you know, since Stan and Netflix and Foxtel services have come out, um, piracy has declined quite dramatically. And it's a clear, clear correlation, a clear causation, in fact, that... The more content that's available in a timely manner at a reasonable price, um, the less you know, the less infringement there is. Because Australia, it's it's quite clear that Australians are very happy to pay for good content, and the experience except for news. <laughs> well, I would even uh, I would I would argue that, but that again <SSSSSSSSSSSR> I'm taking this on a tangent. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's but a why, slightly different issue. Why but...
1: is it then that APRA and Amcos and the Copyright Agency and the Australian Association of Authors are all lining up to really oppose this idea of of fair use and are concerned that it's um, you know it's an American legal principle. We don't need it here. We've already got state of the art copyright laws. Why do we need to change them, etc.? And I know you've outlined some of the issues of yeah. why we might want to change them, but But why is it that so many influential arts-based groups are lining up against any change?
3: Um, You know, change can be hard. Um, There are some significant vested interests there. Um, It's worth noting, for example, um, the Copyright Agency, and disclaimer here, I'm a member of the Copyright Agency myself, um, but they're certainly not um, representing my views on this, but they have been withholding royalty payments um, around orphan works for many years to build up a uh we believe fifteen million dollar war chest to fight this uh to fight this campaign. Now, um, if they come out and say, you know, they're working for the interests of authors, then why are they withholding royalties from them?
1: I have um, not heard that before, but yeah, I mean that's something that we can and have a look at. Yeah, no, it?
3: that's been in the in the yep. in the Fairfax press and that's um there's actually uh some uh an inquiry going to Going to start into all of the collecting agencies to make sure that you know they're actually being being run appropriately. But I think you know it's clear that it's clear that there are some strong vested interests there, um, which are just resistant to change because because it's change, um, and that's fairly natural and, and, and human. Um, I think there's also some bigger issues at play around um, manoeuvring and sort of strategic. Uh, strategic um, negotiations around things that will come into play down the track. And we're starting to see these things happen in the European Union where there are conversations going on at the moment, proposals around, um, you know, essentially imposing a tax on, um, you know, providers like Google that are aggregating news. Now, now, that is quite a separate discussion, but, you know, I think there's a bit of positioning here going on. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, but generally, I think it's... Um, it's, you know, vested interests that are trying to protect their position. You know, these agencies do, um, you know, they provide a very important service. There's no question about that. But they also, um, you know, do pay some very nice salaries to a lot of people and, you know, keep, um, keep, keep things going on. So there are strong vested interests there for them to maintain the status quo, as it were. Um, one other point I would make is, you know, this, this line that, you know, this is an American concept. Um, I, don't understand why that's a bad thing in any way. Um, you know, we look at uh I think you can you can look at sort of the creative uh creative markets in the US and they're certainly doing pretty well under fair use and have been since it was introduced in nineteen seventy eight. I mean this is not a new concept. Um, and it's probably important to sort of look at the difference between where we are now and where Will potentially go. Um, At the moment, we have what I call a number of fair dealing exceptions. They're fairly limited, but you know, for example, um, it's something that Triple R would use when reporting news. So you know, you can use copyright material for news reporting, um, limited research and academic things, uh, parody and satire, and so forth. And it's essentially um, it's essentially broadening those. those exceptions to say, look, if it's not rather than rather than having everything specified in the act itself, which of course um, means that things can't evolve, and it means that the law is always going to be a long time, uh, you know, many years behind sort of society in that sense. Um, it basically says let's let's adopt a principles approach. So if it's not harming the essentially the economic interests of the copyright holder, um, you know, if it's a, a percentage of the work or um, and you know, particularly if it transforms the work in some way, um, then look, it's likely to be. Fair.
1: Yeah, I know Dylan wants to jump in here, but sure. I wanted to sort of. Um just come at that that idea of vested interest because Mm -hmm. there's always vested interest and certainly lining up on the other side are also vested interests. and so I just wanted to put that out there because um, we all have vested interests, and I think that those representing artist groups of course are lobbying on behalf of their members and and those that they represent but anyway. Uh, (laughs) Remind listeners
0: if you've just tuned in we're speaking with John Lawrence, the Executive Officer at Electronic Frontiers Australia all about proposed changes to copyright law and what we might see in that space and I mean as we've just spoken about John, copyright law Or changes can be very controversial, but we have had a change pass in Parliament uh, just last month, which was, um, I think, broadly supported by by most. Can you talk us through what those changes are? Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. This was um, this was an amendment uh, which had a number of factors to it and uh, was uh, pretty much universally supported, um, with one exception, which was then taken out of the bill. and I'll go through the details of that in a sec. But just as an example of, sort of how slowly these things can happen, this was essentially um, uncontroversial um, reforms, very overdue, much needed, and it still took two years, you know, to get them through the parliament from from when the uh, legislation was written. So um, essentially, it uh, this legislation um, implemented uh, what's called the Marrakesh Treaty, which is a sort of a very important global treaty that is about removing barriers to um, Uh, format shift uh, works so that they can be accessed. um, The treaty is particularly about people with visual impairment. Um, Our legislation actually goes a bit further than that, which is excellent, um, and says essentially, you know, you're not breaching copyright if you take somebody's work and change it so that it can be accessed by somebody with a disability. Now, clearly you can't argue that that's clearly not harming the copyright owner. In fact, it's broadening their market. So in a sense, it's arguably actually you know helping them um so that's um that's very welcome and I th- and 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 it's it's hard to understand how anyone could sort of oppose that there's a couple of other things around um fairly ridiculous restrictions um that have been in the acts uh, around archiving um so they've been removed and this is the sort of thing that um Essentially prevented digitisation of collections. Um, so the National Film and Sound Archive is a good example. Um, if they wanted to make a digital copy of a film for preservation purposes, the Act said that they would have to destroy the original to do that, which is just absurd. So that's been removed. Again, uncontroversial. Um, also some changes around unpublished works. And, uh, this is partly to do with a, an excellent campaign that, um, the libraries and the ALIA, the Library and Information Association ran called Cookie for Copyright, Cooking for Copyright, um, last year. And essentially, if, if something has never been published, the copyright never expires. So we're talking about things like Captain Cook's Diaries. Um, you know, technically they can never be used because they're still in copyright. Um, So this change literally just says, okay, well, they have the same copyright term as everything else. So all of a sudden, uh, I'm not sure of the date, I think it comes up next year, all of this work, and we're talking about millions of items, will suddenly become available. Um, and, you know, stuff from 150, 200 years ago, you know, personal correspondence, diaries, recipes, all this sort of great stuff, you know. Copyright owners are long dead, of course. So that's great. Um, the one part of that that was pulled out is what's called an, ex- an extension to the Safe Harbour Scheme. Um, and this is a little bit controversial. Um, and essentially what that is is um, it's a process where if you're running... Um YouTube's the obvious example. I'm running a platform where, you know, there's scope for a lot of copyright infringement to go on. If you have a process where somebody can come to you and say, Look, that's my copyright, it's not authorized, take it down, and that process is sort of straightforward and, you know in many cases relatively automated and, 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 and simple, then the uh, platform the platform provider gets some legal protection. So um, as long as they're providing that process, then essentially you don't sue the platform provider; you sue the you see the person itself. But essentially, what it does is encourage platforms to, you know, be very responsive to to infringement and to, um, and to you know introduce these takedown processes. Now, at the moment, that exemption or that legal protection in this country only only applies to the major ISPs, so what's called a carriage service provider, so Telstra, Optus, essentially. Um, the uh, the proposal is essentially to just extend that to any service provider. Now, the, our perspective on that is that that's likely to mean that there is in fact, um, a lot more, uh, and a lot easier ways for people, particularly small artists, you know, maybe don't have, you know, a team of lawyers doing this for them as, as the big, big corporations do, to get their, to get their content pulled down when it's being infringed. So for our perspective, that's actually quite a positive thing. Um, Again, it's been fairly strongly opposed, but um, we understand the government's been um, managing some negotiations and we're hoping to get some positive outcomes on that fairly soon. So it's really, I mean, mean, look, it's
1: really complex. And for people that aren't living and breathing this stuff, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, concepts there that we've just Mm. spoken about, but the Productivity Commission did release its report. It was like just before Christmas last year, 20th of December or something like that. Um, And... Now it's you know their recommendations will be I think responded to by government at some point. Yeah, when so do you think we'll find out what the government? So is essentially,
3: that's what that's that's what we're waiting to see. The government kind of it's in the government's um, court now for them to respond. Um, and of course, that's why these sort of campaigns are starting to happen because you know everyone's jockeying for position um, in advance of that. Um, I think it's important to note a couple of things. Um, Most of, particularly the fair use proposal that's in the Productivity Commission report is actually, um, it's by no means the Productivity Commission's idea. This is actually the sixth report over the last 20 years that has recommended this. Um, Essentially, what they've done is agree with an Australian Law Reform Commission report from four or five years ago. Um, So, you know... Certain people have strong opinions about the productivity commission. It's certainly not them alone that is uh, that is recommending this. Um, and look, I would um, I would essentially encourage people to to kind of look at this in a you know objective manner. There's a lot of we've put up a lot of information on our web, on our campaign website, which is faircopyright.org.au can have a look at the free is not fair side as well um you know analyze some of those claims there's a lot of myths out there we think that they you know, need to be looked at and the productivity commission went through a lot of them and said okay show us the evidence and in many cases there just isn't any um and look the other thing i would say is that there's actually you know th- there's a number of other sort of smaller proposals within the Productivity Commission report that really aren't being talked about that we think are potentially actually quite positive. One in particular um is a concept of essentially creating what you might call a small claims court for copyright and, and IP issues. Now um, at the moment, you know, again, if you're a small artist or an author or, you know, a musician um and somebody's infringing your content you can send them a cease and desist letter, and beyond that, your only option is to go to the federal court. Now, that's a very, very expensive process that is essentially, you know, prohibitive for for, for most most individual actors. Um, the idea of a small claims court, of course, would you know essentially reduce the costs of that, make things a lot quicker, and we think that is something that really needs to be. Regardless of anything else, we think that could be a very positive development that you know empowers um, small. You know, up and coming Australian creators. I mean, you know, the big, the big copyright owners, they're fine. They've got teams of lawyers. They can look after themselves. But we think there's a real gap there that, um, you know, needs to protect the little guys.
1: We've probably had a time, John, but if you... I mean, there were some really good links there for people that are interested in this area and uh, you will see more, you know, hashtag free is not fair and the counter campaigns coming out. John Lawrence is from the Electronic Frontiers Australia and you can head to their website to find out more about their views on fair use and there's certainly a whole army of people lining up against um, changes to the um, copyright laws as uh, recommended by the Productivity Commission. So watch this space and we'll see how the government responds. Thank you so much for coming in today, John. Thanks a lot. Just in the past couple of days, there's been some pretty remarkable developments in energy and climate. Elon Musk's Tesla will get the chance to install a big battery in South Australia and an FOI request forced the federal government to release data that shows Australia's emissions are rising, not falling. And here in Victoria, the state government's new coal policy leaves the door open to brown coal-fired power into the future. And oh, and the G20, uh, 19 global leaders reaffirmed their commitments to the Paris Accord which further isolated the US, which is walking away from that agreement. And uh, Cam Walker joins us this morning as he does once a month on the grapevine and he's up in Mount Beauty.
0: What are conditions like up there, Cam, before we get stuck into the the meaty issues? Is there a lot of snow hanging around?
4: There's starting to be. It was pretty, you know, slow and ordinary early on. And in fact, the resorts were the only places that had snow and that's because they were making it. Um, so, yeah, it's been a bit sad cross-country scares and back-country scares, but it's just starting to kick in now, which is
1: very exciting. <laughs> so you're in a good mood. All right, well, let's talk about climate policy. <laughs> um, on balance, um, the the news globally appears to be pretty positive with regards to action on Climate Cam, but, um, you know, with the the world's government's reaffirming commitments to Paris at the G20, but the US walking away is a big deal. How, I mean, how big a deal is this that they're they're sticking to their guns and they're going to walk away from this agreement?
4: I think because it's nothing new, you know, we knew that Trump was going to stay out of this and just be obstinate in it. But I think, in a way, it's a relief for everyone else because they can just get on with it. So um, there's always this attempt at consensus in these type of meetings, in the G20, in the UN, uh, in international compacts and treaties and agreements. So to have... You know the villain, the big villain out of the room is actually good for everyone else because they can actually step up to the plate. So I think in that sense it's good. And then of course domestically, what's happening with Trump is he's getting an increasing number of cities, large cities, and an increasing number of U.S. states are saying, well, we're going to show leadership uh, on climate change. So I think it's like the river is flowing around this obstinate rock, which is Donald Trump, and just kind of getting on with it. So. In some ways it's it's not a bad outcome rather than him being in the room and then just slowing it down and slowing it down.
1: Yeah, and I mean, um, Turnbull was over there and um, meeting with lots of different people, but um, here at home, uh, the ACF put in an FOI request and uh, the government was forced to release its latest data, which shows that um, uh, when you pull it all together, our emissions are rising. They might be falling per capita, but they're actually rising overall. And I wonder if we're at the point now where we should be very concerned that we can actually meet our targets under the Paris Accord.
4: Yeah, they're... It's, it's a kind of interesting, days, isn't it? We're all cynical about politicians and, you know, it's hard to get kind of outraged because they keep just doing appalling things. But to withhold data about how we're going with our international climate agreements is actually pretty astonishing that they did that. And it's astonishing that a Green Group actually had to FOI them so that the public knows what's going on. And I think that speaks volumes about the federal government at present. They love coal. They're prosecuting the case to open the Adani coal mine, which would be the biggest coal mine in Queensland and one of the largest in the country. They're very unhappy, for instance, that Victoria has banned uh, fracking for unconventional gas like they are So on the wrong side of history and they've, you know, they've come up with this clean energy target idea after the single review, which is really basically going to help the new gas projects get up and running. They are just not in the game at all. Uh, you know, it's really disappointing and it's quite astonishing with all the developments in technology and the uptake of renewables that emissions can actually go up because appliances and economic activity increasingly becomes more efficient. You know, phones, for instance, become more efficient, computers become more efficient. It's astonishing that we're actually going in the opposite direction and I think the government has worked pretty hard, uh, you know, to get this type of kind of appalling uh, outcome that they have. It's not just They've just been pursuing a a climate and energy agenda from the 1950s.
0: And I guess as you alluded to briefly there, can there's been a, a difference in policy direction uh, between the, the federal and state government here in Victoria. And I know previously when we've spoken to you, you've been broadly positive about what the Andrews government's done in terms of pursuing its own renewable energy target and also banning fracking. But we've just heard from the government that they've got a, a new coal policy that's come out over the past week. I wonder what your take on that is.
4: Yeah, now this is policy that describes whether there's a role for coal in future in Victoria and if so, under what conditions. And we were lobbying very hard and campaigning hard to say, look, climate science says that so you know, it made sense last century, it doesn't make sense now, let's just draw a line under that page and move on. Sadly, the government didn't have the courage to do that and they've created this policy and it came out on a Friday afternoon, that kind of says, you know, the the intention behind it. It's a policy that makes no one happy, you know, all, all the green groups are jumping up and down. The Minerals Council isn't happy because they think there's too much red tape and it's all about trying to keep hope for new coal going in the Latrobe Valley, but if you talk to people down there, not many people believe there will be new coal, you know, or they don't think there will be new uses. that they would release this document and yet yet you know they can't have done it with much joy in their hearts because they knew no-one was going to be happy. So you have to wonder ultimately why
1: they did it. Yeah, and I mean there, there is still a commitment there at the state level for a zero emissions uh, overall energy by 2050 and so that is there. So that's the red tape that you're alluding to, is it?
4: Yes, indeed. And the fact that um, to open a new coal-fired power station you'd need to hit a certain emissions intensity target so we haven't had this um, for the last probably eight years. Uh, previously, when they could the ROP were in power, they had an emissions intensity scheme that they put in under the Climate Change Act. The Coalition got into power and gutted all that. So they now put a, a new target in place. You could you could build a new gas-fired power station probably under those targets, but you wouldn't get a conventional brown coal uh, power station up. You could only do it if you could uh, basically offset the emissions or use carbon capture and storage and that's incredibly expensive and it doesn't work at commercial scale and no one knows when it might actually work or if it will work. So I think the government is thinking, well, There'll never be, under these agreements, there'll never be a new coal-fired power station, but it kind of technically leaves the door open. Mm-hmm. But the thing that we're worried about is it might create an opportunity for people to find new uses for coal, coal for hydrogen, for instance, uh, so we can drive cars, or coal uh, to fertiliser, and both of them would come with very high carbon footprint.
0: I don't want to be too cynical, Cam, but but does this decision, this coal policy, do do you think, is that driven by, uh, I guess, a desire to offset fears that that have been and might be put out further by the coalition about the issue of jobs and, and energy transition, given that Victoria is pushing, you know, relatively strongly for that?
4: Absolutely. and the Coalition for a little while there under Matthew Guy were actually quite progressive on climate change issues, and as, as we've said on the show, they even appointed a shadow of renewable energy minister, you know, it looked like they were going to come into the 21st century, but they've reverted to basically you can only describe as a climate denier position, and they keep talking about energy security, price rises, cost of living, And, you know, the fact that they would keep the coal-fired power stations open. So they've adopted an energy position at odds with climate science and at odds with what the community wants. And so now climate policy is just intensely partisan. It's party political. And it's really disappointing that the coalition has decided to go down this pathway, you know, and and they've got the cheerleaders basically in some of the conservative media who will love to, to run these stories if you talk about renewables you have got to talk about increases in energy costs. So it's really disappointing that we're having this conversation. Climate change in 2017 should be beyond party politics. And unfortunately, the coalition is just playing party politics on this issue.
1: Sam Walker's with us. He's with Friends of the Earth, and it's the Grapevine, um, right through till to midday today with Kalia and Dylan. And um, outside the, the Latrobe Valley, I've just spent lucky me spent a, a week up in uh, two weeks actually north of Cairns and uh, in the Daintree. And the bumper stickers up there say a lot about that conflict between coal mining and jobs and the environment. And uh, I wonder if we'll ever get past that. Like I, I know that's always been the case here with logging jobs in Victoria. That um, that's been in conflict with with environmental values as well. And, uh, you know, my observation was that the coral jobs up um, on the reef and in North Queensland just don't seem to be valued as high as the coal ones. And, I, yeah, do, do you see us moving past that, Cam?
4: You have to hope. Uh, but, again, we're talking party politics, aren't we? You've got those uh, coalition uh, politicians in North Queensland who are just banging the drum as much as they can and they're trying to create a culture war which is... It's about you know latte stickers in the south versus real Aussies you know trying to get jobs in the coal industry. It's really disappointing we're having to go through this yet again. You uh, probably saw the bumper stickers up there, which is I won't take your latte if you don't take my job. You know that type of thing. I did my own spot uh, poll,
1: and a few people I saw drinking soy lattes were very happy to to give them
4: up. <laughs> Indeed, if it meant saving the reef, then maybe we should do that. Uh, know it's just such a silly kind of thing argument to be pushing it's just culture wars it's boring it's out of date you know and it's not going to get jobs on the ground and as you say, there's a lot of jobs in the great barrier reef in tourism and in the support infrastructure the figure is 70,000 jobs at present and this new mine will only produce uh and according to you know documents that were released in court 1464 direct jobs so you know it's You add 1,500 jobs against 70,000 jobs, why would you do it? So it is really disappointing. I think part of the reason is that the tourism industry in Queensland tends to be quite small, small small-scale businesses, medium-scale businesses. People that are just busy with their lives in hospitality and service sector. They're not... You know, political operatives in the way the mining industry is. So you just don't hear the voices of those type operators, but also the people that work the bars and look after the hotels and the resorts. You just don't hear them in public in the way you hear the big mining companies banning on. They're very well resourced and uh, they've got very good access to the government. They've got very good access to the conservative media. So they're disproportionately privileged in terms of the conversation around development in North Queensland, whether we want coal and what the impacts of that might be on the Great Barrier Reef and the economies that exist that rely on, on the the reef being healthy.
0: And um, if we turn to return to the international realm briefly, Cam, ahead of the, the G20 last week we heard that uh, the outcome of talks at the United Nations um, around discussions to, to achieve a ban on nuclear weapons was, I guess you'd say, was successful, that the countries that were part of those discussions have agreed to a treaty to ban nuclear weapons and spoke on the program last week uh, to Associate Professor Tillman Ruff all about kind of how those talks were going. But given that we've achieved this treaty now and, and none of the, the states who actually have have nuclear weapons were part of that do you think that that this will i guess affect the ability for for countries to to use and and test nuclear weapons given that we know that the devastating effect that can have not just on lives but on the environment as well
4: oh absolutely and this has been you know long long fought for many years by groups like Tillman's grief i can you know incredible grassroots effort You know, if you wanted to bet on will the world, uh, you know, ban nuclear weapons, you wouldn't want to put money on it, would you? It's very unlikely. And yet they've persevered for years. They've now got this draft treaty, uh, 122 countries signed on. And now I think in September it opens for ratification. And when 50 of those 122 countries ratify it, it passes into law and it becomes enforceable incredibly exciting. It's like, you know, this has been something we've been building to since the Cold War, or probably since the end of World War Two. It's, it's, you know, incredibly exciting. Unfortunately, it's not being supported by any of the powers that do have nuclear weapons, including the United States. Um, and Australia has kind of been missing in action, you know. It wasn't actually even in the room at the point when the vote was taken. So, you know, Australia, we don't have nuclear weapons. You have to wonder why we're adopting a, a difficult role when there's such global will out there. But, um, yeah, I think in the next couple of months we'll see whether the, the commitment that was shown in New York recently translates into ratification, and if it does, then it's going to get very, very interesting once we actually have an enforceable international treaty uh, in place, and then it will be fascinating to see how Pakistan and India and the United States and Russia actually respond to a, a united global community on this issue that also has the laws that allows for,
1: Well, we haven't even talked about Tesla's battery, but let's leave every other media organisation in the country to do that instead, and we'll catch you again in a month's time.
4: That'd be lovely. Thank you.
1: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website
4: at rrr.org.au.